Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Thus far in this series, we have dealt with the necessary background, both from the Romans and from the Franks. This week, we'll move the final pieces into position as we discuss the political situation in Gaul prior to the rise of Clovis in Episode 3, Meet the Rivals. As we saw in Episode 1, Roman power had been on the decline in Gaul throughout the 5th century. With the deposition of the last Western Roman Emperor in 476, the Romans held on to a rump state in northern Gaul while the new barbarian rulers flexed their muscles. We're going to focus on the two major states that stood between the Franks and domination of Gaul. The Burgundians were to the east, but we're going to start with those to the south, the most powerful, the feared Visigoths. According to the Roman soldier and historian Ammianus Marcellinus, the arrival of the Goths on the Roman Danube in 376 AD was, quote, the ruin of the Roman world. It is important to remember that Marcellinus was writing at the time, and the Gothic War, while devastating, would not ultimately destroy the Roman world. But, years later, his words would become much more credible, as the Gothic threat to Rome never dissipated. The Goths were a Germanic tribe who lived roughly in the area north of the Black Sea, perhaps stretching as far as the Volga River in southern Russia. The Eastern Roman historian Jordanes claims the tribe originated in Scandinavia, but there is no concrete proof for this. In the later 4th century, the Goths began to come under pressure from the migrating Huns. Some Gothic groups stayed in their lands, coming under Hunnic dominion. Others migrated west eventually seeking refuge in the Roman Empire. It was the arrival of these Goths that prompted the grim statement from Marcellinus. However, the threat of the migration of Goths into the Empire is often overblown in accounts. As we know, the later Empire suffered chronic manpower shortages and needed strong, hardy settlers for its border regions, so incoming barbarian groups were often welcomed at this point in the Empire's history. The Goths were not the first, nor would they be the last group to seek entry. Like all the others, they had engaged in some raiding of Roman territory and were far from peaceful, but the Romans had strategies for dealing with this situation. First, you disarm the group. Letting large numbers of armed barbarians into Roman territory was not considered good practice for some reason. Second, you make it clear their native leaders have no more authority. This is an important step in making them ordinary Roman citizens. Third, and finally, you break them into smaller groups so they don't overwhelm the border forces and can be settled one at a time peacefully. This system had worked for integrating barbarian tribes for over a century at this point. Unfortunately, the Romans failed to achieve any of these aims with the coming Goths. Upon the arrival of the Goths at the Danube border, The eastern emperor Valens was off in Syria, preparing for a large-scale war with Sassanid Persia. By all accounts, he was delighted at the news that a fresh batch of Germanic recruits wanted to enter Roman territory, and apparently offered them very favourable terms. Syria to the Danube is a long way, however, so Valens could not have known exactly how many Goths he was letting into his empire. He was simply too far away to have a handle on the situation, and the officials on the ground proved to be either too corrupt, too greedy, or too incompetent to handle the situation. Just in case we attempted to think of the Goths as evil antagonists to the noble Roman protagonist, 
it is worth noting a few details about the lead-up to the Gothic Rebellion. First, many thousands more Goths turned up than the officials had expected, likely because more had heard about the Roman offer of protection, and sought to slip in with the tens of thousands of Thervingi Goths, the tribe that had negotiated with Valens. The officials did not have the manpower to handle this number, thanks to the campaign against Persia, and the crossing of the Danube soon descended into chaos. The Romans did not provide enough boats, so desperate Goths packed onto makeshift rafts and even hollowed out trees, and many drowned in the river. With that traumatic experience out of the way, the Roman troops corralled the Goths into a small area south of the Danube, and attempted to stop more crossing, mostly without success. The number of Gothic refugees was already well into the tens of thousands, with more crossing every day. With such a number packed into a small area, food shortages began immediately. The Romans promised more food, but not only could they not deliver, but the local Roman commander Lupicinus decided to make a quick buck by massively hiking food prices to sell to the starving Goths. It is recorded that the Goths got so desperate they began to sell their children to the Romans in exchange for dog meat, with one child worth one dog. Shockingly, this horrifying display of Roman callousness angered the Goths. The Thervingi and the others that had crossed were ordered to move south by Lupicinus, who was clearly aware that the situation was deteriorating. The size of the Gothic refugee train forced the Romans to strip forces from the Danube to accompany them, which promptly allowed another Gothic tribe, the Gruthungi, to cross en masse. The Thervingi slowed their march purposefully, and the two groups joined, with Gothic numbers now around 100,000. At this point, it was already too late for the Romans. A scuffle broke out as the starving Goths were refused entry to the Roman city of Marcianople's market, and Lupicinus decided to seize several Gothic chiefs in retaliation as hostages, including the Thervingi chief, Fritigern. Fritigern convinced Lupicinus that the only way to calm the rebellious Goths was to let him free, so he could reason with them. As you, me, and everyone else except Lupicinus could see, this would prove to be a colossal mistake, and Fritigern soon took control of the mass of Gothic warriors. Still armed, still in one massive group, and with their leader intact, the Goths took off on a pillaging rampage, crushing the small groups of Roman legionaries that were sent against them. Upon hearing of this catastrophe, Valens quickly concluded a truce with the Persians and raced back to Constantinople. He waited for a while as the Western Emperor, his nephew Gratian, was heading east to support him, but was soon convinced by his arrogant generals not to share the glory and attacked the Goths alone. The Goths, still led by Fritigern, wiped out the Roman army, at the famous Battle of Adrianople, which would go down as one of the largest defeats in Roman history. Valens was killed, and the stability of the empire was shaken as the Goths rampaged across the Roman Balkans for the next six years. Eventually, the new Emperor Theodosius, soon to be Theodosius the Great, secured peace with the Goths, but that peace changed how barbarian groups were treated forever. The Goths were allowed to remain in Roman territory, under arms, under their own leaders, and fighting in independent Gothic units. This was the beginning of whole tribes settling in Roman territory, and soon other tribes, like the Vandals, Burgundians, and Franks, 
would receive similar concessions. The Goths were settled in Pannonia and Illyria, guarding the eastern entrance to Italy. This was a supremely powerful position, the one that eventually led to the first sack of Rome since that of the Gauls 900 years before. If you remember back to the first episode, Flavius Stilicho was the only thing standing between the Gothic leader Alaric and Rome. Once he was killed, Alaric entered Italy unopposed. It was never really his intention to sack Rome, he simply wanted more concessions from the imperial court at Ravenna, but when they kept refusing and toying with him, he was left with little choice but to sack the Eternal City in 410. Alaric died soon after the sack, and his brother-in-law Atulf rose to be king. Atulf led the Goths out of Italy and into Gaul, which had just been restored to the empire after yet another civil war. After a few years meddling in imperial politics, Ataulf was forced out of Gaul and into northern Hispania, where he died in 415. Earlier, he had married the sister of the western emperor Honorius, Galla Placidia, and they had had a son named Theodosius. It was certainly Ataulf's hope that little Theodosius would eventually come to rule the empire, uniting the Romans and Goths into one nation. Unfortunately, his son died in his infancy, and with him, any chance of a Romano-Gothic emperor. Atulf died soon after his son, and some more instability eventually led to another king called Walia, who accepted Fodorati status, and a more permanent peace with the Romans. A deal was struck during his reign, that gave the Visigoths the lands of Aquitaine, a large, rich portion of southern Gaul, if they agreed to rid Hispania of the Vandals for the Romans. It is at this point we can really start calling this group of Goths Visigoths, which simply means Western Goths. The Ostrogoths, or Eastern Goths, will eventually appear on the scene and seize Italy for themselves with the blessing of the Eastern Roman Emperor. The agreement between Honorius and Walia formed the basis for the Visigothic realm, both in southern Gaul and in Hispania, where the Visigothic kingdom would survive after being forced south by Clovis. Walia's successor, Theodoric, would make good on the agreement, defeating the Vandals and Suebi tribes who had entrenched themselves in Hispania. Theodoric would also fight another friend from episode 1, Aetius, several times before they teamed up to defeat Attila at the Catalonian Plains in 451. Theodoric's death in the battle made him a revered figure, and the Visigothic king served as the main inspiration for King Theoden of Rohan in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The last important Visigothic king we will talk about this week is Yurik, who took control of the kingdom in 466. During the twilight years after the death of Majorian, Yurik revived the expansionist impulses of the kingdom, facing far less resistance than his predecessors. Fighting and defeating the Romans, and even a British king, he established a dominance over southern and central Gaul and most of Hispania, kicking the remnants of the Romans north, the Bretons back to Brittany, the Suebi into Galicia, and also was recognised as king by his subjects and the puppet emperors in Italy, finally freeing his people from Roman vassalage. Euric was a strong and powerful ruler, and it is his death in 484 that allowed Clovis to face his young and unprepared heir, Alaric II. Had he survived, who knows what might have happened. 
Now, it's time for the Burgundians, the other major power in Gaul. After Stilicho's removal of the forces from the Rhine to defend Italy, the Burgundians were one of the tribes that moved into Gaul in the winter of 406 to 407, taking advantage of the power vacuum. Unlike the Vandals, who quickly drove south, they stayed and settled, quickly establishing themselves as one of the major powers in the region. Their king, Gundahar, along with Goar, king of the Alans, raised the usurper Jovinus in 411, who in return granted the Burgundians the right to settle on the western bank of the Rhine in Roman territory. Gundahar, sometimes called Gunther in German legends, seized several cities, including the modern German city of Worms, where he made his capital. By the 430s, the Burgundians were coming under increasing pressure from the Huns, and their role as a buffer was starting to wear on them. In response, Gundahar began expanding west into Roman territory. This was not appreciated by our old friend Aetius, who moved east and crushed the Burgundians in 436. Humbled, Gundahar retreated back to his lands and his court in Worms. Aetius was not content with his victory, however. The reasons for his next move are not entirely clear. Perhaps he was sick of constantly slapping down these Germanic tribes. He was constantly having to move south to keep the restless Visigoths contained. Perhaps he genuinely feared the Burgundians. Gundahar had certainly proven himself an ambitious and crafty adversary. Either way, he decided to take a drastic move to diminish the Burgundian threat. Using his close relationship with the Huns, while Attila was still primarily interested in the Eastern Empire, he invited them into Burgundian territory and let them loose on the population. The Huns surrounded and destroyed a Burgundian army 20,000 strong, again led by Gundahar. Gundahar died alongside many of his people in the vicious sack the Huns perpetrated in Burgundian lands after their victory. This treatment was incredibly harsh and never repeated by Aetius. Despite this, however, the Burgundians survived and were still strong enough to serve as a buffer when Aetius moved the tribe south into modern-day eastern France and southern Switzerland. Their new realm centred on Lyon and Vienne, prosperous and well-fortified cities that would eventually form the core of their state, and the Burgundians soon regained some of their strength and began to take part once again in the politics of Gaul. During the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, it seems Burgundians fought alongside Aetius, though some may have also fought for Attila. In 456, they supported the Visigothic campaigns in Hispania, showing just how much their strength had recovered from Aetius's harsh lesson. Upon returning to Gaul, they seized the same area around Lyon and Vienne, this time for themselves. Except for a brief time when they were challenged by Majorian, their hold on eastern and southeastern Gaul would not be seriously challenged until the sons of Clovis came in 532. With this stability came expansion, south into Provence, clashing with Romans and Visigoths for the important region, north to Langres and Nevers, northwest to Auxerre, the Burgundians carved a significant chunk of Gaul away and into their increasingly important realm. Major powers of the period sought their support. The barbarian general Ricimer 
even married into the Burgundian royal line to support his ambitions in Italy. Despite the rise of the Franks under Clovis, there was actually some debate as to who really dominated Gaul in the early years of the 6th century, with significant evidence pointing to the lofty political position of the Burgundian king, Gundabad. The Burgundians are often an afterthought in this period, overshadowed by the waning Visigoths and the waxing Franks, but they were certainly in a strong position during the rise of Clovis. A more expansionist policy, a less capable Frankish leader, and everything might have gone differently. And who knows what might have happened if Aetius had not taken such destructive revenge a generation before. The Visigoths and the Burgundians were not the only rivals the Franks faced, but they were certainly the most significant. We have already discussed the Roman rump state centred on Soissons. However, there is no real reason to spend more time on them today. The days of Rome and Gaul were gone. The state carved out by Aegidius was maintained by his son Syagrius, but we do not get the impression he was the same kind of man his father was. With shaky legitimacy and waning political power, it was really only a matter of time before someone put them in their place. In fact, some sources claim the Visigoths already had, with Uruk expanding north all the way to the Somme River, implying some kind of dominion over the realm. The chance of a Roman resurgence in Gaul was slim to none. There were other movers in the region, but all were rather minor. The Saxons would prove a thorn in the eastern side of the Franks for centuries, but at this point were far from organised enough to flank them and move into Gaul. Besides, they were busy raiding Britain and, eventually, setting up their own kingdoms there. Speaking of, you may have noticed the Bretons popping up earlier to fight the Visigoths. It was in this period of chaos in Britain that the native Britons began to migrate off the island and into Brittany, the peninsula in northwestern France. The king that fought Uruk, Riothamus, is considered by some historians to be one of the inspirations for King Arthur. His people would settle into the rough lands of Brittany and meld into the tribes there. Even with these tribes, however, the Bretons would never have the numbers or resources to be more than an annoyance to the great powers that ruled to the east. Though they would continue to be independently minded and rebellious well into the Middle Ages. Other Germanic groups, like the Thuringians and the Alemanni, were too far away and didn't have the strength to break past the Franks and Burgundians on the Rhine. Some, like the Alans, had already been settled in Gaul, but had failed to form centralised states and had been dispersed into the populace. Others, like the Vandals and Ostrogoths, were powerful enough to intervene, and sometimes did, but were happy with the land they had already grabbed and had no interest in expanding into Gaul. This left the three major claimants alone to battle it out. The Visigoths to the south, the Burgundians to the east, and the Franks to the north. Before we finish this week, there is one group we haven't yet discussed. The Gallo-Roman aristocracy is the most important group in this equation, and historians go to great lengths to point out how their support was necessary for any new regime to succeed. They control the massively influential, even at this early stage, Gallic Christian church. They controlled huge estates, thousands of labourers, trade, 
most administrative and governmental positions, and had many connections both in Gaul and across the former empire. With all these benefits, you might be thinking, why didn't they seize power for themselves? Why didn't they throw their support behind Syagrius? Or undermine their new barbarian overlords? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. They didn't want to. The provincial aristocracy had been slowly drifting away from Rome for a while. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, they had used their position to stymie imperial attempts at central control, holding back recruits from the military, not paying their taxes, and generally refusing imperial orders and laws when it suited them. They were able to do all of this largely due to their massive wealth and stranglehold on the rural areas of the empire. In their massive estates, they were largely untouchable. Like it or not, most emperors simply lacked the ability to do anything about this, and slowly the system became more and more entrenched. The landowners became more selfish, more independently minded, and even wealthier. As wealth trickled up and into the hands of a select few, the masses were reduced to servitude for little to no returns. Institutions of church and state filled with relatives and supporters, or were simply bribed, and there was really no stopping the system, no matter how powerful the emperor was. He relied upon whatever the landowners were willing to leave him. Now, if you're seeing some parallels between these massive, interconnected organisations and their ability to ignore taxes, rules and laws that are meant to govern their society, and, say, certain modern companies, maybe named after a fruit or a South American rainforest, well, that is certainly interesting. If you're also seeing the roots of feudalism, then you're not wrong, though the exact system of formalised relationships that govern much of Europe in the Middle Ages is still a while away from forming properly. Still, the Gallic nobles were enthusiastic members of this upper crust, and as selfish as anyone else in the empire. What these nobles wanted, more than anything else, was stability. They wanted to sit in their estates and make money. People invading, burning down their fancy houses and killing some of their peasants was bad for the bottom line, and also their peasants, of course. Throughout the later empire, these aristocrats became increasingly disillusioned with the imperial court in Italy, seeing it as ineffective and unable to properly defend their property. So, they began to turn to more creative solutions. Historian J.N. Hilgarth explains the situation well. Quote, At the beginning of the 5th century, many Gallic nobles, losing confidence in the empire, had turned to pretenders arriving from Britain. From this, it is not too difficult for these nobles to transfer their loyalty to Visigothic or Burgundian, or later, to Frankish chiefs. End quote. If these new Germanic rulers could preserve their lofty position, then hey, let them rule. Who cares if they're not Roman? We're still rich and in control. This was the compromise that would allow Clovis and his heirs to seize control. With the socio-political basis for Germanic rule established, it is time for the rulers to get down to the business of war. Each of the big three possessed the ability to dominate Gaul, so which one would it be? Next week, an emphatic answer to that question will finally arrive. Clovis. It's going to be Clovis. See you then. <laughs>